Welcome to Gospel Tangents, the best source for Mormon history, science, and theology. I'm Rick Bennett. We're going back to the archives, and I'm going to publish for the first time the entire interview uh, with Margaret Young discussing the life of Jane Manning James. Jane was an early black member that knew Joseph Smith, and we'll talk about her early life. Now, remember, this is actually my very first podcast. I never published the entire thing, and I never published the video ever, uh, mostly because I was a little disappointed I didn't frame it very well. It was my very first interview ever, and so uh, while the audio was fine, the, the video, there were you'll, you'll see some framing issues that I wasn't happy with. So forgive me, <laughs> it was my first interview, and I didn't know what I'm doing. And so I've also improved the audio. Uh, there was a big uh, difference between me and Margaret in our audio levels, and so hopefully it sounds a lot better than those initial ones back back in the day. So anyway, this is from January of 2017. So it, it's my very first one. So I hope you enjoy our conversation with Margaret Young. Welcome here. This is my first Gospel Tangents um, podcast. I've got Margaret Young here today. Margaret's a wonderful I know you, you teach English, but I call you a historian, especially I'm, of black history. The last thing I wrote for the church history department, uh, their series, Women of Faith, um, I, I told them that I had a particular document in its original. And they said, so you have the holograph? And I said, no, it's the original. And they said, well, that's what we call it. And I said, okay, you've just found me out. I'm actually not a historian. I don't know the terms, <laughs> but I have been since 1998 deeply involved in history of blacks in the West. Well, that, that's wonderful. So with February coming up, um, February is Black History Month, uh, I thought it would be wonderful to, to talk to you a little bit about uh, Mormon black pioneers. Um, and the one thing that I think gets a lot of, of short shrift is Jane Manning James. Um, you know, a lot of times, one of, one of my big interests is, has always been the priesthood ban. And, you know, we, we talk about the men and how it affected the men. Um, but I think Jane Manning James, you know, I know she wrote a letter, which we will talk about. She wrote multiple letters asking but, for temple blessings yes. to every church leader who she knew. And was denied. And so I, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that um, as we go here. But I think that really one of the, the big uh, blind spots in black history is, you know, the women. What happened to the women? And so, so that's what I'd like to talk to you mm -hmm. a little bit about today. So, And um, we can do Jane, and there are, she's not the only one. There are other women. Uh, Jane is predominant in, in many ways because she remained in Salt Lake City, she remained LDS, but there are black women who came on the Pioneer Trek who had significance in United States history, uh, not in Utah. Yes, there's Biddy, Biddy Mason. Smith Mason. Yes, so I want, we'll, we'll, and, we'll save another episode for Right, right, so we can so. just focus on Jane now. Yes. So anyway, I uh, just wanted to give a brief introduction of Margaret. I know Margaret teaches at, at BYU, mm -hmm. creative writing, as I recall. That's so. generally what I teach. I teach literature, too. Okay. And you've, uh, you've made films and are currently making a film. Um, I've made documentaries. I'm making a feature film right now, which is a totally different ballgame. And I've just delayed it a little bit uh, because it's set in the Congo and major things are happening in the Congo right now. And I need to be sure that we're telling the right story and that, that we present it at the right time. So we want to, uh, I'd love to meet with you again and we'll talk more about your, your I'd, I'd love to do that. 
Um, I know, actually, I got on Amazon because uh, I knew that you had written at least three books on Black Mormon pioneers and was surprised when I discovered you're, the, you're an author of eight books, as I recall, at least according to Amazon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, six novels, two short story collections. Okay, so you're—I I would call that prolific, but I've never written a book. So. <laughs> <laughs> prolific writer. Um, so, um, anything else I should add for your introduction that you'd like other people to know? Um, well, I'm—I'm I'm proud of my four children. I just got a new granddaughter on September fifteenth. I've got three. Three, I already had three, but then I, I get to babysit my new little granddaughter. And that's actually a big part of my life. That is one of the great joys. Well, and I hear grandchildren a lot more fun than children. <laughs> In some ways. This, this one is sure, sure a joy. <laughs> All right. So let's, let's jump in. So how did you first learn and get interested in, in Jane Manning James? Well, um, this is going to be one of those religious stories, so uh, I'm happy to tell it. I, I hope that that the audience comprises people of faith, regardless of what faith they have. Um, in 1998, I had published several books. Uh, I had won some awards, and my goal had been, I want to get published. And that happened, and I realized, this is not that big of a deal. I want my writing to make a difference. So I was in the temple and I just presented that to God and said, I want to do something that matters. Uh, lead me somewhere that where the story will matter. Um, and then my, I didn't tell my husband about that, but he gave me a blessing at the start of the year and said, you are going to be given an assignment that will use your talents. So I started looking around for what I should write about, and I landed on the name Jane Manning James. I had heard nothing about her, and I started doing a little research. I, I really had only done fiction at that time, so I was starting to fictionalize things, and I produced a hundred pages that would be the beginning of a book on, on Jane Manning James, and I was starting to tell pioneer stories in Relief Society, and then one Sunday, uh, a woman who had had a stroke and so was in a wheelchair and not able to speak, was wheeled into the Relief Society room, black woman, and I realized she's here for me. Turned out she wasn't even in our ward boundaries she had chosen. She just said she wanted to go to this ward. There was no reason why she would have chosen it. Um, well, we in our family, we do know how to communicate with people who are not able to communicate. My husband's sister died of MS, and so I, I knew how to do that. And I knew that music was a way to do it. So Susie Thomas and I became dear, dear friends. And through, well, I guess I was asked because I had started speaking about Black Mormon pioneers. I don't think I had published very much on that subject at that point. I certainly, you know, I had the 100 pages. And I was invited to participate in a Sunstone Symposium with Jean England, who is, of course, the ideal person to be on a panel with, talking about 98, so 20 years after the lifting of the priesthood restriction, where are we? And I had heard on a cassette tape, something recorded from KUER radio, an interview with Darius Gray. And I had played it for Relief Society, and it was still in my purse. So I was there with Jean and, you know, kind of knew some of what I would say. And a 
black men walked in and came up to Jean, sh shook Jean's hand and said, hello, I'm, I wish I could do Darius's voice. Hello, I'm Darius Gray. And I immediately thought, oh, I've got his voice in my purse. And then he came over to me and said, I'm Darius Gray. And I said, I've got you in my purse. And I pulled out the cassette and he nodded in a kind of confused way. <laughs> anyway, he had not planned on coming. Somebody had given him tickets. And then he saw that two white people were going to talk about blacks in the LDS church. So he came as a spy, pretty certain that, that we would mess up and that he would be there to correct us. And it was really one of the sweetest moments of my life when afterwards um, he gave me a hug, just a big hug, and he, and he had tears in his eyes. And he said, I'm so grateful that you get it. And then he said, let's write a book. And the, there was a little more, uh, more with Susie, where I actually, when she received her endowment, I was able to be with her, and miraculous things happened. So all of this started in an absolutely miraculous way. I gave Darius my 100 pages, and he said, I can help you with this. This is the language of my childhood. So my job was to get the chronology, everything that had happened, get it written up, and then we would read it Allowed. I would actually have Darius read it, and because my father was a linguist, I know how to listen for how people say things. And he would just naturally change what, the, the, what I had written to something that sounded like the language of his childhood. More authentic. Yeah, yeah. And that, so he, I consider, I was the, was the one who took care of the physical details of the book, and he was the soul. Uh, there was one time when I called him and said, okay, this is what's going to happen. Jane is going to be going to Salt Lake City. Her mother is going to give her a blessing and a prayer. Could you just pray for me? And he, uh, he, he did it. He did this beautiful prayer that made him cry. And we just put that in the book. Um, I knew as soon as Darius came in that he would be a part of the book. I prepared the way for that. In the first book, I had his great-great-grandfather, Louis Gray as a slave, and he happened to live in Marshall, Missouri, so he was very close to Independence, Missouri. So I put, put him in there knowing that Darius would be there. Now, I didn't tell Darius that until we were getting ready to start the first book. And I said, oh, by the way, you're going to be in this one? And, and he said, no, I'm not. And I said, actually, I prepared that from the first book. I don't remember how long it took to persuade him. I don't remember if we fought about it. We fought about a few things. But uh, actually, if you look, the, the Deseret book versions uh, of, of the trilogy, the third book, which is called The Last Mile of the Way, has a picture of Darius's family on the cover. He's the baby oh, in that, that book. <laughs> yes, okay, so now the, I revised, I caught some what I considered egregious errors in, in what we had done in, in the first book because I tried to be absolutely true to the history. And when I found that I had made mistakes, uh, I insisted on rewriting them. So I prefer that people read the, the books published by Zarahemla Press. And the way that you can identify this is a picture that Deseret Book chose to represent Jane James, but it's not Jane. And because of many things that happened, including our becoming, uh, how can I phrase our relationship with, with Louis Duffy? We became great friends with Louis Duffy, who happened to hear missionaries were in his area, and he said, hey, hey, my grandparent, my great-great-grandma, my 
great-great-grandparents were Mormon pioneers. When he would say that to people generally, they'd say, eh, I think you're thinking of the wrong religion. But uh, one of these missionaries had seen the play, the play I had written called I Am Jane. And they started telling, you know, said, have you, have you ever heard of this play? And started telling him the plot. And Lewis said, that's my great-great-grandmother. And then he got online, found, he found our books, ordered them express mail, and we had followed his direct line. His mother is in an end note in, oh, wow. in our book. So he wrote to Margaret Young and Darius Gray, care of Genesis, and Salt Lake City, Utah. Somehow it got to us. Uh, Darius wasn't, at the time we got the letter, Darius was not the president anymore of, of uh, the Genesis group. But the letter got to us. And we became dear, dear friends. We remain dear friends. And Lewis has, he continues to give me things, and I continue to give him things dealing with black past. When, when I uncover something, he's one of the first people I go to. Well, that's cool. All right, so I know, so you, you're really, in my mind, you're the biggest expert on Jane James that I, that I know. So um, I understand you wrote a screenplay uh, about, the, about her. Could you kind of talk well, a little bit about that? Um, the truth of that one was that you're going to have to decide whether you want to use this part, okay? <laughs> Deseret Book had planned a really big advertising campaign and had put out $20,000 to film these stories that would be played sometime during conference. And uh, all of a sudden it was pulled. And we had all of the footage but the, it was not going to air. We were never given a solid reason. Our sense was that people were uncomfortable with the fact that we were, just by the nature of what we were writing about, bringing up that very difficult issue of the priesthood restriction. Hmm. So that was pulled. I was given rights to the footage. I worked with uh, Scott Freebairn, uh, who had filmed everything, and we cobbled everything together to make a little documentary. But that came as a result of something that didn't happen. <laughs> Very interesting. I know this, this can be touchy. Um, one of the things that I've discovered personally is it seems like it's, more, it's a more touchy subject for white people than it is for black people. Black people are very happy to talk about this, but why Well, a lot of black people don't find out about it until uh, they're on missions. That, that was the case with Darren Smith, who uh, no longer participates in LDS-type things, uh, which is sad because we could certainly use his voice. Uh, some of the African missionaries who I know happened to be in an apartment where Doctrines of Salvation, the book by Joseph Fielding Smith, was, and they read uh, his ideas, which were all speculations and not true. And one of the African missionaries was deeply upset to find that, according to Joseph Fielding Smith, he had been less valiant in the pre-existence and was cursed because of Cain. And Elder Holland went to dedicate Cameroon and areas around there, and all of these missionaries were there to talk with Elder Holland. And they opened up for questions, and this African missionary had his white companion ask Elder Holland, about this fence-sitter idea, the curse of Cain. And I heard back, because I was writing to about 20 of these missionaries, I heard back from a bunch of them telling me how agitated Elder Holland became in saying, that is not true. I wish nobody had said anything on that issue, but that is not true. Um, and 
of course, at this point, we now have the, the official race essay, which disavows the whole idea of Curse of Cain, uh, valiancy in the pre-existence, and that uh, is, is not a public affairs thing. That went through all of the hierarchy. They were aware of it. Uh, they knew it was going to be coming out. Uh, it was quite a process, a two-year process for the person who, who wrote that. Um, it, and it wasn't me. Uh, <laughs> and I think generally they prefer that his... And, and, and at this point, we really wouldn't say he wrote it. Uh, we would say he was among the writers because it went through committees. And, and some would say, well, we can't have this and we can't have that. Uh, so ultimately, it's a product of, of people meeting together and saying, what do we say? But the fact that it does not say we don't know why the restriction existed is actually really big. We do know why, because of the culture of the day. Uh, everybody believed in the curse of Cain back then. That came in the 1400s with slavery. How do we justify taking humans into bondage? Even, you know, if, if it's tribal violence that brings them into a place where we can then take them into bondage, how do we justify that? Well, look, God said, you know, that, that Ham through, uh, Ham through, uh, Canaan through Ham was, was cursed to toil and bear water for his brothers. And that came because Ham was a descendant of Cain through his wife, a whole lot of far-reaching to justify the unjustifiable. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I really do think that whites are much more defensive about this. And maybe we have, you know, we have reason to be. Well, I, I because I'm 61 years old, uh, I grew up with the priesthood revelation. I was 23 when, and I was living in Mexico when, when it was lifted. And it was, that was a day of great joy. But I was raised with appalling ideas. Thankfully, I had particularly my father, uh, who is my example in so many ways. I'm really continuing his work in everything I do. But my father would react strongly when anybody would say something ugly against blacks. And it happened a lot. And when my seminary teacher said something really ugly, I went to my dad, and my dad was upset. He was deeply upset. Uh, and that, that let me know that it was okay, that it wasn't that what I felt when my seminary teacher used the N-word or when he said terribly, uh, just awful things about blacks, that it was okay to know this is wrong. These are his ideas, and they're wrong. And then... To, to go all the way up to 78, have the restriction lifted, but that certainly wasn't enough. It lifted the restriction, but it didn't disavow anything. And then to, to go through uh, the time when President Hinckley in 2006, I believe, in uh, the general priesthood session, said beautiful words, how can any man holding the Melchizedek priesthood arrogantly assume that he is eligible for that priesthood, whereas another, whose skin may be of a different color, but who lives a righteous life, is ineligible. And that was sort of the great preparation for the race essay that came about in, in Gospel Topics. Philosophically, we are in a good place with what we believe and what we don't believe. Now we need to have our hearts go where the, the ideas have gone. Wonderful world. I'll just add that I was, I was pretty young. I was probably about 10 years old when, when the announcement came out. And I remember, I, I lived in New Hampshire at the time, and I remember um, thinking blacks couldn't hold the priesthood. I didn't know that. 
<laughs> well, and, and that was for many people. In, in, I, I was born in 55, uh, but raised for a while in Indiana and, and, and in Chicago, Illinois. So I, I did see racism. I saw it in my fourth grade class which I recognized what it was, you know, what nobody told me. Do you realize that when your teacher is calling these three black boys, the only black boys in your class, up in front of the class and berating them that it's wrong and that she's doing it because she doesn't like the color of their skin, there was my heart, my intuition said, this is wrong. So I, I was introduced to racism because my, my father had taken us into many different cultures and I, we had people in our home who had various amounts of melanin in, in their skin. So I was really prepared for everything that I did in, in the black history. Uh, Darius and I don't think we're quite finished yet. We don't, we don't know what is ahead. And much of my time in the future will be in Africa itself. And how, what a marvelous thing. I, was, I have a godson and goddaughter, Emmy and Steffi Mbouye. And uh, I went there for, I went to the Congo. I was in the Congo. Uh, to help film. Dana Gerald was with me, and, and uh, he's a, just a magnificent actor, and he gave wonderful firesides. I was so grateful to have a black man with me who could be there as an example of a Mormon from the United States. I was so grateful, and for the firesides he gave, they were wonderful. Um, but for us to be at the bride price ceremony, which is a Congolese custom, but then to be able to take Emmy and Steffi uh, to Ghana. We were not able to go to South Africa because they didn't give visas to Congolese. And I actually, I was in touch with Elder Holland through this because he knew Emmy. He had given Emmy a certificate uh, when Emmy completed a construction program in, in Kinshasa. And so I, I just sent a note to Elder Holland, pray for us. We, ha we haven't been able to get our visa to South Africa. And his secretary uh, wrote me back later and said, did you ever get it? I said, no, we decided we'd go to Ghana. And Ghana was a place of more miracles. We did do some filming there at Elmina, the, the slave castle. But there were other things that happened. Uh, these newlyweds were going to live in patron housing, and we were behind because we had to meet with film teams in South Africa. Uh, so I just talked to Emmy and said, how's patron housing? And he said, oh, oh, it's, uh, it's good. We're in separate bedrooms. And I said, oh, because the, the entire Ivory Coast stake had come and they were using the patron housing. So they, there were not rooms for couples. Oh, wow. uh, no room at the end. <laughs> but it turned out that one of the people from that Ivory Coast stake was a man I had heard of at length, and I had wanted to meet him, and I had talked to the person who had told me about him, and I'd said, boy, I'd like to meet him. And she said, well, I'm afraid the Ivory Coast is a long way from the Congo. And then later on she said, he's going to be in Ghana. Uh, he's going to be in Ghana for temple, uh, to, to, to take the stake to the temple. And I said, when? And she gave me the dates. And I said, I'm going to meet him. And indeed, I stayed in patron housing. I gave Emmy and Steffi my room. And I got to spend, I got to go to a youth fireside, which was inspiring. I wish all American youth could see the youth of Africa in their reverence, their attention, their willingness to sing the songs. It was glorious. And then I got to have about an hour-long discussion with this man I had heard so much about. Miracles all along the way. I felt angelic, an angelic presence everywhere that I that I went. It stayed with me for several weeks when I returned to my temple work. It was with me in a way that I had not sensed it before. It was dangerously with me, I suppose, when I was 
uh, visiting a friend in Seattle, and I had a rented car, and I thought, we can, I, can, I can get to the airport. It, yeah, it says it's empty, but they always put a little extra, right? And it, it shut down, and I was out of gas, and I said, angels, I'm going to need some help now. That's, they had become so real to me in, in Africa that it was still just, hey, I know you're there. I will need some help now. And indeed, I, I, it wasn't an angel. It was uh, somebody who looks out for people who are having trouble and gave me some gas. So oh, I got there. That's a fantastic story. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit more about um, Jane James. Or I guess she grew up Jane Manning, is that correct? Right. Manning is her maiden uh -huh. name. Jane Elizabeth Manning. So, so um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, what are the first stories that you know? I, I understand she's probably one of the best documented black right. pioneers. Well, the stories, when they were first being told, tended to focus on her remarkable journey. She joined the church in Wilton, Connecticut, and her whole family uh, had joined the church, meaning her siblings, and her apparently her, her mother and her stepfather also had joined the church, and uh, we think the stepfather probably took a train, but all of the other Mannings went to uh, Buffalo, New York with the intent of taking a ship to Nauvoo. They got all of their baggage on the ship and then were told, oh, you can't go unless you pay up front. Well, they didn't have any money. Uh, and of course, it, this went back to their race. Uh, so they left that that boat and uh, started walking and she says we walked at a distance of over 800 miles we walked until the soles of our shoes wore out and you could see the whole print of blood on the ground we knelt and prayed we asked god the eternal father to heal our feet and our prayers were answered and our feet were healed forthwith we went on our way singing praising god for all he had done in preserving us and in healing our feet that's the story that is generally known the painful part comes later. In I Am Jane, the first part is just full of, the, the play I wrote, the first part is just full of music and joy and, and lovely things. And then there's a, there's a turn. Joseph Smith is, is killed. Um, the, the saints go to Salt Lake, but only Jane goes uh, with her husband, who she has married in Nauvoo, Isaac James. And she, Jane, had been raped by a minister who uh, in the first, th this was in Wilton, Connecticut. So in the first book, I kind of identify him. Uh, th there's pretty good evidence of who it probably was. So she had wow. a son, Sylvester, when she first came into Nauvoo. And Sylvester was there with them on the trek. That, so that part is pretty well known. But then we get to the fact that we have the priesthood restriction. And because of the wonderful research of people like Henry Wolfinger, we have access to her letters to church leaders asking for temple blessings. We know that Elijah Abel held the priesthood, uh, was ordained from, the, the, sort of from what we've seen in various accounts by Joseph Smith himself. So during Joseph Smith's time, there was not a priesthood restriction. And that, if you want to know more about that, just read the essay. Um, so, on the so do you know what... what Church she grew up in and, and what was it was Presbyterian. Presbyterian was, was she a free slave or, or was she, was she free or slave? Connecticut so she was had been emancipated. Her mother there was gradual emancipation in Connecticut. Her mother, whose slave name was Phyllis and whose free name was Eliza, was raised a slave, but she, because of gradual emancipation, was also free by the, by the time of the trek. Okay, do you know approximately what year that Jane was born? Eighteen twenty-two. Eighteen twenty-two. So. So she was born free right, uh, right. With, with that. And then uh, 
So she attended the Presbyterian Church for right. a time. And the Presbyterians, in fact, there's a page where they talk about pushing her outside because she keeps going to hear the Mormons and the, the pastor does not like that. Oh. So <laughs> that's some, some of what I fictionalized as, as we went. But I, I wanted to talk about the significance of Elijah Abel in Jane's life. Okay. He died on September 25th, 1884. That very day, that's Christmas Day, 1884, that day, Jane apparently went to the home of President John Taylor. And she had wanted to have a conversation with him. That didn't happen, which we know, because on December 27th, she, probably working with somebody who transcribes Jane could read, but she couldn't write, uh, wrote a letter to President John Taylor that says, Dear brother, I called on your house last Thursday, which was the date of Elijah Abel's death, to have conversation with you concerning my future salvation. I realize my race and color and cannot expect my endowment as others who are white. Still, inasmuch as this is the fullness of time, and through Abraham all mankind may be blessed, is there no blessing for me? Eventually, you know, this 1884 is a tumultuous year in, in what's, everything that's happening in, in Mormon history. Eventually, she is given a recommend to do baptisms for the dead and does many. Uh, I think mostly in Manti and Logan. Salt Lake Temple won't be dedicated until 1893. But that's, that's what she's given. Now, um, what I find people tend to focus on a lot is that she had been asked by Emma Smith if she would like to be adopted as a child to Emma and Joseph. And Jane, in later years, writing her life history, said, I was so green, I did not comprehend. So she turns it down. Now, when she's seeking to go to the temple, she says, I was, they asked me to be adopted. Well, unfortunately, there is a, a ceremony in which Bathsheba Smith represents Jane as proxy, and Jane is sealed to Joseph and Emma as an eternal servant. Um, the thing about Jane is it's pretty clear to me that she didn't buy that. She, she, that was, she knew that that was not right. And if you listen to the words of that letter, this is the fullness of time. In Abraham, all mankind may be blessed. She's giving the reason that we now understand is exactly right. No, that it was when it, when it talked about no divisions in the house, that the gospel is to go to all nations. That's what it means. There, there is never, an, never a good reason to restrict via one avenue or another one population. So, so Jane uh, goes to pays, pays visits to Wilfred Redruth frequently, and he, he says, "Well, Jane, Jane came again. She, she asked me to for her endowment once again. I had to tell her that because of Cain. So again, that idea that now the church has has repudiated uh, that she couldn't receive her endowment." For me, that's a part of the story, but I get, I don't like the fact that in some tellings, it's the core of the story, because it certainly is not. Jane wrote her story that she wanted to be read at her funeral, and she closed it with her testimony, which is, um, my testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ is as strong today, nay, it is if possible stronger than the day I was first baptized. I pay my tithes and offerings. I keep the word of wisdom. I go to bed early and I arise early. I try in my feeble, ex feeble way to be an example for all. That to me, Jane's faith and the fact that when you go through her story, she doesn't mention the, the proxy stealing. That's just, that, it's just a really bad thing that happened. Uh, 
bad things happen in families, in churches, uh, but it does not define her. It didn't define her at all in her day. I'm sure she was told, and she probably shrugged her shoulders and said, well, I think God wants more for me. Uh, so then we, we have, have Jane bearing her testimony, and every time she talks about a trial, she follows it up with the way God has blessed them, with the feet. Uh, we praise God for healing our feet, talking about how her, her children were so hungry and she had no food for them. And she says, but in all, the Lord gave us grace to, grace to stand it all. I want Jane's story to be certainly an example of how far we still need to come. If there are people who regard blacks as less than, their hearts must change. But Jane is an example of one who per persevered through trials that we can hardly imagine and did it through her relationship with God and, and praised God throughout. Hmm. Well, I, I just wanted to ask you about that. So do you think, you know, let, let, you know it's always fun to play what if. Do you think if um, Jane had accepted that offer by Emma back in, what, 1840s, whatever it was, uh, that that may have impacted the, the temple ban on, on blacks? I personally don't, because the leadership, once we get to Brigham Young, uh, things change. And even though Elijah Abel had been washed and anointed in the Kirtland Temple, he wasn't in Nauvoo when the endowment was given. That's what would have changed history. If Elijah Abel had been in Nauvoo, he was a great friend of Joseph Smith's, if he had been in Nauvoo and had been endowed, I think that that would have had an impact, that the restriction would not have been put into place. Jane presented the fact that, I mean, she talked about uh, various avenues towards getting what she wanted, but that idea, that cultural idea of the curse of Cain was so strong and the leadership had changed that it just didn't happen. Very interesting. Well, um, I've only asked you about one-fourth of what I wanted to ask, and I know you've got to run. And I, I want to keep these, these kind of short anyway. Let me just ask, I'll, I'll just finish with one last question. Um, do you kind of feel like you're kind of Jane's biogra biographer and protector? Um, that would be deeply problematic. For uh, the, There's a, a big concern with appropriation these days where if a white woman says, I am in charge of Jane and the way her story will be told, it is deeply problematic. I am certainly among those who loves Jane and I have received miraculous avenues in getting to know her better. I'm so grateful that I have been able to pay tribute to her. Uh, we've, Darius and I helped get a couple of monuments. We marked all of the graves of her children that had, they were, um, she lost most of her children. Only two of them survived her. So we marked their graves. We've, we've been able to do a few really nice things to let people know who Jane was and know her remarkable history. And I'm, I, I can't claim to uh, any, any, particular authority over Jane because she is herself and she her, the research on her is available to anyone who wants to do it. All right. Well, thank you for your time. Um, I really appreciate this. I, um, 
I know that I will love to call you again and, and, and meet some more and talk more about uh, Jane and, and other people in, in uh, church history. So I hope, uh, hope you'll be able to meet with us again. You bet. Love to do it. All right. Well, thank you, Margaret Young. Um, really appreciate your time here on Gospel Tangents. Okay, thanks. thanks. I'm going to dash. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Margaret Young. Margaret, thank you so much for sitting down with me and for being my first interview ever. So I really appreciate that. If you like what we're doing here on Gospel Tangents, please become a paid subscriber at gospeltangents.com or patreon.com slash gospeltangents. We've got full transcripts on our website at gospeltangents.com. And if you'd like to check out some of our other conversations, click over here. Thanks.